Three, two, one, record. Andy, flubber dubber dub. <laughs> Dan, slubber dubber dub. John, weed. John, you're missing the point of this. You've got to say the same <laughs> word so I know it's the same thing. Flubber dubber dub. <laughs> it's all from Bill and Ben. Peter, flubber dubber dub. Hazel, slubber dubber dub. <laughs> what? Why is mine funny? <laughs> slubber dubber 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 dub. What if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Five words. I'm Batman. Do or do not. There is no tomorrow. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got... Dan Watkins. Andy Chandler. Peter Johnson. John Hartley. And I'm Hazel Burton. On our show today, uh, we've got some more recommendations, so we'll find out what our nerds have been enjoying during the 93rd week of lockdown. And we have got a bit of a Hitchcock special. So did you say we're, we're talking about Hitchcock? Hitchcock, not his cock. I've misunderstood. <laughs> uh, I'm awfully under-researched for this. <laughs> First-hand research? Or? Oh. <laughs> so let's start the show. I was just going to go with a joke about the Will Smith movie Hitch, but you've topped me, John. What about Hancock? Oh, Hancock, yeah. Yeah, it's like that old joke about which uh, which celebrity is named after four body parts. Al, Fred, no. Tony Hancock. Tony Hancock. <laughs> the parliamentary briefing is called Hancock's Half Hour in some of the newspapers. Really? <laughs> 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 What a despicable man. <laughs> yeah. How is everybody? People are out sitting in the sunshine, but keeping their distance. So they weren't keeping to the rules where we were yesterday because uh, we saw a group of 12, 13 people all meeting up and all hugging each other when they're saying hello. And you just go, oh. Yeah, we, we went to our local park and one woman was taking great delight in walking away around the entire group and getting the people for some reason to slap her in the face and then slap her on the bum. <laughs> Now, right. I mean, I'd, this may say more about what sort of parks I hang around in on an evening <laughs> than anything else. But you've just stumbled across an outdoor sadomasochistic cult. Yes, it is, it is heated, sir. Get involved, John. You sure she wasn't a Morris dancer? Ah. If she is a Morris dancer, I hope what happens to her is similar to the end of Midsummer. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to wish on anyone. <laughs> So let's have a look at some recommendations. Uh, so this is where we'll find out what our nerds have been enjoying recently and they would like to recommend to our listeners if they haven't been enjoying it already. Oh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Peter first. Yeah, I've picked this one because I think it's interesting. I don't think it'll be to everyone's taste, but I quite like you guys to have a look at it later and see what you think. It's called Upload. And it's one of two high-concept sci-fi comedy series that Greg Daniels has launched this year. He's the guy who created the American version of The Office, and the other one he's just launched is Space Force. Mm. It's set in the year 2033, by which time you won't have to die, but it can instead be uploaded to a digital heaven. A bit like Black Mirror's San Junipero. <laughs> Junipero. Easy for you to say. <laughs> Nathan, our hero, dies in mysterious circumstances and he's sent there on the family plan of his still-alive girlfriend. Virtual things there cost money in the real world, so she gets to see and approve everything he does, which isn't very healthy. The heart of the story is a romance between Nathan and his angel, who's a customer service rep in the afterlife. 
And how you react to that sort of romance and relationship is probably determines whether or not you'll enjoy the show, I think. But Judith, who hates rom-coms and is pretty much immune to mushy stuff, found it charming and engaging, so Mm. your mileage may vary. I always love movies or shows that show future technology and the effect it can have on us. Demolition Man or Total Recall are full of these little details on the periphery of the story. There's a lot of that here, such as there's a budget plan for Digital Heaven called the 2G plan, which is kind of pay-as-you-go. So you (laughs) you have to be careful not to use too much processor time and run down your credit, or you get put in suspended animation till the end of the month. But I did find some interesting ideas aren't pursued. There's the challenge of continuing a relationship when one of you is dead. And there's a mystery surrounding Nathan's death, which is only touched upon for much of the series. Nathan's living girlfriend is portrayed as a terrible bitch sometimes, but sympathetically the next, so it's a bit inconsistent. It felt like the show was written one way and then maybe pivoted into being something else late in development. I did hear it had been in development for something like four or five years before it actually came to fruition. And in that time, we've had The Good Place, which have kind of explored some of this territory. I was going to ask how it compared. Is it very similar because the creator is from such a similar background? Or has it been created totally independently? It doesn't feel like The Good Place. It's not as funny as The Good Place or as sort of groundbreaking in some ways. But it, it's an enjoyable watch. It's light, undemanding stuff. And often, if we're in the middle of watching like a, a complicated or quite heavy series, it'd be the sort of thing you'd go to when you just want to watch something as a little break and some, something a bit lighter and a bit more fun. It's available on Prime Video and it's already been renewed for a second season. John, you were thinking of having a having a watch. I assume you didn't. I got sucked into my current hall of um, comfort watching, which is MasterChef Australia. So I watched several <laughs> episodes of that instead. Right. Which will not be my recommendation this week, but that's my current late at night want to turn my brain off relax watch. My thing with it, what does it do that The Good Place doesn't? Well, would that be a bad thing? Not necessarily, but I think if it, I mean, I enjoy The Good Place, but I think by the end of The Good Place, it had explored a lot of these possibilities and felt like it had reached its natural conclusion. There's only some sort of overlap in the broadest possible sense. So eternal, is it quite different? Yeah, it's a sort of a bit more light comedy, less edgy, less less something important Mm -hmm. to say. And, And in a way, that's its problem, because I think there were a couple of issues they touched upon that could have had more scope. Yeah. But in remaining light, they, they maybe don't explore those things. Seems like an odd choice to keep it light and fluffy, um, because to me, the whole concept of, you know, a digital heaven is quite odd and creepy and not particularly healthy, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine it wouldn't help the grieving process if you had a 50% maintaining of it. I don't, if I was to watch the show, and I, I, I'm, I am intrigued by it, I would want to focus more heavily on those aspects but it sounds like it skims over them a bit star trek picard also kind of touched the edge of those ideas Mm. that could have had a lot more interesting to say about you know digital afterlife Mm. and whether somebody's really alive or dead if they're yeah in this place yeah Yeah. still from the viewer's standpoint he's a real person he may just exist digitally but he has thoughts and feelings and cares Mm -hmm. and emotions and you can identify with him and yet for his girlfriend, who is presumably going on about her life, she's seeing him with VR goggles on. And so as to him, it probably feels like a real experience. But to her, it's just like sticking VR goggles on. So does he, can she interact with him or is she just what, <laughs> they watching do ha- what's happening? They do have a sex suit, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> oh, dear. 
sex suit. Yeah. What, sex suit. A sex suit. Yeah, it's basically like a pair of overalls, but it's got these sort of rubber glove fingers inside. <laughs> um, I've got one of those from Ann Summers in that it didn't work. <laughs> I find it hard to imagine it striking a light or a comic tone. Mm-hmm. And even uh, the Black Mirror episode which everybody hails as the most positive, uplifting episode of Black Mirror. I can see all the ways, especially for LGBTQ representation, that that episode is great. But the idea of being stored on a server after you die, there's this undercurrent of, this is actually creepy as all hell that this is happening. Would I, based on that viewpoint, struggle in finding anything light or funny in this? Or would I just think it's a weird, scary, dystopian hellscape that people seem to find funny? I don't think those elements would bother you when watching it. It's it's more, mm. hey, wouldn't it be great if this happened? Sort of attitude to things. Okay. She does at this point say that um, weird dystopian hellscape that some people find funny is the name of my sex tape. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> I think we need a special sound effect for that there. <laughs> Not for your sex tape, obviously. Like one of those, what's it like? Sad tuba noises. <laughs> That's also the name of your sex tape. I was thinking more of boy <laughs> uh, Someone help us. Someone change the subject. So, <laughs> how many clouds out of 10, Peter? I think it depends what mood you're in. If you're after something light and fluffy, then it's actually quite appropriate to be clouds. Some people will love it and give it an eight, an eight and a half. I think other people might see it as pointless and give it a five it's very much a case to try it out i went in expecting not very much and was pleasantly surprised and it was one of the things i would choose to watch uh, over something more serious so if you could quantify that thought peter into a, a score i'd give it an eight it's one of those odd things it's almost hard to defend but you actually enjoy it for yourself <laughs> it makes me more interested to watch it because in my head i just had it as a, a good place knock off I'm still not over the finale of The Good Place. I I was in tears. From about five minutes in right through to the end. And it it snuck up on me because I didn't massively enjoy the first half of season four, but that last episode floods Mm. throughout. I I couldn't stop myself. One of the greatest TV finales. Yes, definitely. And I'm not over it. (laughs) 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 Right, who's next? Because I, I like, you know popular things and things with a a wide appeal that I know you will like. I'm going to recommend a fancy horror Swedish Iranian film from 2018 called Border. <sighs> Has it got Nicolas Cage in it, John? It, it does not have Nicolas Cage in it. Uh, and this, okay. is a, this is a genuine recommendation. It is a really, really good film. It is based on a short story by, I'm going to try and pronounce the name correctly, John Lindquist, who did Let the Right One In. It's similar tonally to that, and it's directed by Ali Abassi, who is a Swedish-Iranian director who directed a horror film a few years ago called Shelley that was quite popular among genre fans but didn't really break through. Now, I'm going to tread carefully describing this film because there's a lot of surprises in it and there's a lot of things that serve as perhaps a this might not be for everyone Border starts with a a woman called Tina who works in border control on the Swedish border. She has quite Neanderthal-type features. She's quite socially awkward, perhaps because of her appearance. She's teased a lot at work. But she has a, a unique ability in that she can smell emotions. So if somebody is coming through the border, 
perhaps with some something that they're trying to smuggle in. She can smell fear or she can smell that they're lying and she uses that skill within her job. One day, a guy comes through Border Control who looks similar to her, has the same facial features and is bringing through some maggots and she lets him through and he keeps going back and forth and clearly with their facial features, so they may be more alike than they first see but they may have a lot in common and a relationship develops between them. But who he is, what they are, is one of the twists of the film. But also whether she can entirely trust him and what he's doing in relation to the B story also comes through. The B story involves her finding something that comes through customs that was very well hidden, and then she's involved in the investigation to find out where it came from and what's happening. And it turns out the two may or may not be intertwined. What John Lindquist does very well is magical realism, I would say. So you will have a modern banal world into which it introduces a fantasy element, so vampires and let the right one in and magical creatures here. Really beautifully shot as well by um, Ali Abisi. But then on the other hand, you've got body horror that's up there with Alien or Cronenberg. The caveat, and I will say it's dealt with very, very tastefully, is what she's investigating is such a horrible, dark thing that is happening that it could put some people off. And it's very, very difficult without spoiling the film to say what happens and how it happens. But again, there's some quite haunting imagery there, and I think it justifies it. But it's just such a horrible concept that I think it will turn a lot of people off. But not you. Yes. It was quite well reviewed, if I remember. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the reviews did talk about quite a memorable sex scene. Is that right? Yes. There's, shall I say, a unique sex scene and there's a unique reproductive cycle as well, which is uh, interesting. It does sound very interesting. Uh, I was aware of this film when it came out and had intended to see it and didn't for some reason. And uh, I think you've done a very good job of describing it without divulging too much detail. I'm very interested. I would very much like to check it out. I would recommend it very much. I think you'd enjoy it. I will watch something else at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I won't be watching. What I want to make clear is it's not what you see in the film that's unpleasant. With one exception, if you're you're squeamish about certain things. (laughs) Sorry, (sighs) telling us nothing there. (laughs) Even then, I get it. It's beautiful rather than horrific in terms of what you see. Yeah, but your definition of beautiful (laughs) and what's horrific might be different to mine. (laughs) Very different. Right, okay. Like, you know, Seven is one of my favourite mm. films because it's such a unique concept and there are some absolutely horrific things that happen in there um, that yeah. are described rather than shown. Yeah. So I'm not completely against the concept. I'm just maybe just a little bit unsure due to being burned a couple of times, but mm-hmm. might give it a go. I'm fairly sure a few people would have warned you not to watch Seven if, if you'd yeah. been about to. Yeah. I think you're right to say beautiful, horrific With Seven, for example, I could watch that film, not be affected by it too much when watching it, Mm -hmm. but then at any point for the rest of my life, at certain moments, I'll just remember those things and go, (laughs) even if the images are beautiful, I can't quite get past the horror side of them. Mm -hmm. So This is like acid flashbacks for Dad. (laughs) Don't talk about acid. No, acid scenes are even worse. Um, (laughs) 
It's strange for me because I'm incredibly squeamish in real life, like even like a cut finger or something like that makes me physically nauseous. But I can watch horror movies all day long and I'm, it just doesn't affect me mm. in any way because I, I see the makeup effects, I see the special effects rather than the... Yeah. I guess we'll talk a little bit later on about how horror can be done very well without seeing much. Mm-hmm. Mm. So how many... Um, mm, Things you can't talk about out of 10. <laughs> I almost want to give it a 10 because I, I think it's a brilliant film and it's so imaginative and it's like nothing that I've seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to give it nine border controls out of 10. Okay. <laughs> I wonder whether I've now built up too much things that will put people off seeing it because <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece. It comes with a warning. Yes. Louise is here. Louise, border. And we have a special guest today. It's kind of like a dark fairy tale, but the dark is very dark. Is there anything that people might find difficult to watch that you'd want to warn them about? I think they actually made a specific effort not to show anything too horrific on screen. But they kind of hint towards it in a way that, yeah, it could be upsetting if you you were a bit more sensitive. So maybe it depends how prone to letting your imagination run wild you are. But I mean, if that's you, this probably isn't the film for you anyway, because <laughs> <laughs> it's intriguing. It's not like nothing you've ever seen before, but it touches on some unpleasantries. Okay. Bye, nerds. Bye, nerds. Bye. 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 <laughs> if you think of you know Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm and stuff, you know, it deals almost with similar topics to that, but in a more modern way. But would you show this to kids? Oh, definitely not, no. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd like to recommend uh, something that is really helping me get through lockdown, uh, and that is Film Stories. Ah. Film Stories is the the brainchild of Simon Brew, who also founded Den of Geek before leaving that a couple of years ago. It involves two monthly magazines, uh, one which is for adults and one is for kids, uh, which is called Junior Film Stories. Uh, It's also a website and it's a podcast, and it's all about celebrating the stories behind films. So we're talking about production stories, marketing stories, behind the scenes, um, and basically the intricate and complicated nature of bringing a movie from conception um, through to the screen. There are many, many wonderful things about film stories. One of which is that it's not just Simon who writes it. He kind of asks for contributions and he pays for those contributions as well. So many of the articles that you see in film stories are quite possibly the first ever publication for that author. And all the authors are passionate film fans and they've got something that they want to say, whether it's about screenwriting or women in film or the stories of films that have been made at home or in garages. Any topic is possible. So they cover films that you've heard of, as well as films that you you probably haven't heard of as well. The thing that I most enjoy is the podcast. Simon releases a new episode every Monday, and basically he takes two films and tells the stories of those two films getting made. So the most recent films um, he's covered are Scream 4 and The Mask of Zorro, Face Off and Rocky Balboa, uh, LA Confidential and Morning Glory. He never gives away any spoilers. So even if you haven't seen the film, it's still a really, really fascinating listen to hear how it came to be. He'll talk about actors who were nearly cast, uh, unforeseen delays to the production, complications with getting licenses, you know, disasters on movie sets, you know, all sorts. They're clearly very well researched. Simon often mentions things that people have said on DVD commentary tracks and also during the promotional press tours. You can tell what a lovely guy he is uh, and how much he loves the movie process. Another thing I wanted to mention is that 
on the website is a weekly column uh, which talks about mental health and general well-being, which is obviously particularly pertinent in times like these. The most recent article is about trying to offset boredom uh, and what that can do to our mood. So if you follow Simon on Twitter, you'll know that he's he's quite open about his mental health and his struggles to keep going with you know an independent film magazine that he started from scratch when he came away from Den of Geek. It's really nice to see someone be so open and honest about their struggles. And, you know, this has given him and and others the opportunity to help others too. Um, You know, there's something about being able to resonate with someone and go, oh, you're feeling that too. And I just think everything that Simon and and Film Stories is doing, uh, uh, particularly right now, should be commended. And this is just my way of showing my support, really. It is coming from a very genuine place as well, because I listen to the podcast every single week. Um, You know, I've bought the magazine you will learn an awful lot about um, the whole movie making process and learn some really, really interesting stuff. So that's mine. Yeah, I I started listening to it about two months ago, maybe. It's not about the scandal (laughs) of of making a movie, but he is speaking as someone who obviously cares about it all and is very knowledgeable about it as well. Uh, John, I would have thought you would enjoy this because it's just like hundreds of geeky, nerdy stats. Yeah, I, I used to love Dead of Geek. That website sadly isn't what it used to be since Simon Drew left. Mm-hmm. I subscribed to the magazine on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and you have reminded me that I've actually let that lapse, so I will I will mm-hmm. resubscribe. I haven't listened to the podcast. I'm one of these people that would listen to podcasts whilst walking to work, which obviously I haven't been doing for the last yeah. last several <laughs> months. Um, but it does really sound right on my street. Yeah, I will definitely check it out. But I, the magazine, I think. The quality and the breadth of writing in it yeah. is great. And the fact that he is giving paid writing to new writers in a world where lots of people you know, are expecting to write for things for exposure and yeah. should be massively supported. They're really just telling a story. There's, there's no criticism or, or snark involved. Uh, it is it's pleasant. No snark involved. Hmm. <laughs> you can add your own snark. <laughs> I will add snark as required. Yeah, he says there are plenty of places to go to for snark, in which case, Nerdfest podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And they were kind enough to make us their podcast the week last week. They were, yeah, that was really, really lovely. So thank you for this contractually obligated recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. As I said, this is coming from a genuine place. I've listened to the podcast for Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe just over a year um, every week, so... I highly recommend anyone who hasn't um, given it a listen or a watch or a read. So how many perilously funded podcasts out of 10? <laughs> Got to be 10. Got to be 10. If anyone is interested, I will recommend anything I don't believe in for, <laughs> for money or, you know, I'm easily bribable. You have my <laughs> Facebook and Twitter address. Who's <laughs> <laughs> next? Dan? So my recommendation this episode... Uh, is actually a recommendation on behalf of my fiance Amy, whose favourite Netflix show has just returned for a third season. And she would very much like me to recommend Somebody Feed Phil. And uh, she has written a little review that, well, she's written a, a full Aww. review that I'm going to read out just explaining how much she loves it. And Would she not like to come and read it herself? Is she there with you? Uh, as she works Sundays, I'm reading on her behalf. Okay. Okay. If you need a bit of cheering up during the lockdown, it's, it's a great one to pick. So this is Amy's recommendation of Somebody Feed Phil. 
Somebody Feed Phil is a joyous, uplifting travel food adventure with Phil Rosenthal, best known for creating Everybody Loves Raymond. It's like going on a food adventure with your best friend. Each episode focuses on a particular city in the world, which the happy, hungry Phil explores, while making friends one delicious meal at a time. From Lisbon to Marrakesh to Seoul to New Orleans, the show gets the balance of street food and market snacks to Michelin-starred restaurants and family cooking just right. It's never pretentious and it's always positive, and tackles important issues and ideas along the way. Phil's guides, who soon become his friends, include famous cooks and critics, local chefs or food experts, friends from showbiz like Whose Lines' Dan Patterson, who travels with him in the London episode, and friendly faces he's just met along the street or in a queue during filming. She says, I can't help watching with a smile on my face. I would like to become friends with Phil, eat all the food, and go to all these places. The food looks and sounds great. Crackling chicken, the freshest fruit and veg, sizzling donuts, which Phil often shares with his new friends and the whole crew, including his brother Richard. If a dish is a particular hit, Phil's eyes widen and he does a little dance of delight that just makes (laughs) you immediately want to try it too. I'm just sad I had no control and devoured all of season three in one weekend. (laughs) Aww. Um, And for my part, I'm not a foodie at all, although this podcast's Ian Mayer is a fan of this show. It's not the kind of food show that delves deep on the flavours or tries to evoke exactly what it tastes like, but you know when something's really, really good because Phil makes the face and (laughs) you immediately go, I need to try that. It's all about human connections and emotional moments and that commonality that we all have through food. So whether he's sharing a meal with a family in South Africa, or he bumps into two people buying gelato in Venice who recognise him from the first season of the show, and he buys their ice creams for them. It's sharing stories of people through food, whether it's a gospel church or civil rights, or people who've managed to escape North Korea and come to the South. It makes you want to go to the places. Uh, Part of the reason we booked our honeymoon in Lisbon was watching the episode of Somebody Feed Phil, where he goes and tries all the great food in Lisbon. And it makes you think of where you would take Phil if he came to your town. And you think, oh, if he was in Edinburgh, we'd definitely go for ice cream at Mary's Milk Bar. Or, oh, we'd love a burger from Fat Hippo in Newcastle. And So would you say it's more about the people and the food overall, or is it a, a mix? The food is the excuse to meet the people. Mm-hmm. And the food is a way to meet and get to know people that you don't get any other way. Yeah, uh, When somebody is showing you the greatest food from their city, from their country. It's this pride of where you come from. It's saying, no, this is the best chicken in America, or this is the best couscous in the world, or whatever it might Mm be. You get to know people by eating with them. Yeah. Is it true that on the the Dan Patterson episode, that uh, they told him exactly what he was going to eat beforehand, and then edited it down from two hours (laughs) to 20 minutes to make him look better? (laughs) Cannot confirm, but uh, they they go to uh, Yota Motolenghi's restaurant in London. But immediately preceding that scene, he's met with Jay Rayner, the Guardian food critic, and they've gone for fish and chips. Yeah. He can enjoy a two-starred Michelin restaurant as much as, you know, an ice cream you'll get from a stall in a market mm-hmm. square. Yeah. I'm already thinking where I would take Phil Van Newcastle. <laughs> uh, taken to Bistro 46 I would take him to the Bao Bao and Chillingham Road in Heaton which has the the best Japanese food I've ever had 
possibly the Korean dumpling place in the Granger Market and Dabba Wild for an Indian. I'll take them to lots of different places. Mm. Yeah, sounds really good. Um, How many of Phil's special faces would you give it, Don? (laughs) On behalf of Amy, it is the full 10 faces of delight. Um, For for me, it it varies between an 8 or a 9. All the places look amazing as well. They all make you want to visit. But there are some that hold a little more interest for me than others. I would start with the places that you like the look of most, Mm -hmm. work your way through them all, and then go and have a really nice plate of food yourself. Okay, Andy, what have you got? I'm going to recommend a film called Woman at War. And it's a 2018 comedy drama from Icelandic director Benedict Erlingsson. Uh, it follows 50-year-old Holla, a choir conductor and eco-warrior who is engaged in a campaign against an aluminium plant in the Icelandic highlands, attacking it by damaging electricity pylons to disrupt its power supply. Uh, one day, a long-forgotten application to adopt an orphan child from Ukraine is approved, and at the same time, the government, keen to advance heavy industry in the country, steps up police and propaganda efforts to catch and discredit her. Holla tries to reconcile her environmental beliefs and her campaign with her desire to be a mother. The film makes the eco-terrorist protagonist completely engaging and utterly sympathetic. Uh, In contrast, the slimy, manipulative government figures are quite reminiscent of certain British politicians of today. Uh, Despite this, though, the film doesn't ever feel preachy at all. Uh, It comes together nicely as a fun, cheerful story with a huge amount of heart and sincerity. Although a comedy drama, it's, it's actually quite light on the overt gags and more just relies on a good sprinkling of quirk. Uh, something that I'm occasionally put off by in cases where it feels forced or unnatural, but in this film, it feels genuinely charming. The best example of this is in the incidental music, which is provided by an on-screen three-piece band who usually just occupy the background and appear to be effectively non-diegetic, although on a few occasions, Holler does acknowledge or even interact with them. Sorry, diegetic is whether people on screen can hear the music, is that right? It's, it exists within the world of the film. So non-diegetic would typically be the score. It's something that the listener hears but is not heard by, by people on screen. So they, they kind of play with that. The band, that they appear on screen, they're ordinarily ignored as if they're not actually there in the story, but then occasionally people do look at them. And occasionally they do pick up a remote control and change the channel on the TV. It's, it's <laughs> funny and weird, um, but it, it comes across as, as, as a nice quirk rather than something they've, they've put in to try to be quirky. Uh, another group that appear less often, there's a trio of Ukrainian singers provide the soundtrack. And um, you can think of these two groups, the band and the singers, as, as separate representations of Holler's dilemma. So the band represents her warrior side, who she's become, and the choir then represents her desire to be a mother. So you can perhaps think of them all of just, as just being in Holler's head. The first time you see it, you wonder where they're going with it, and then you just you start to like the band, and um, it's, it's a lot of fun. The film is also beautifully shot. It's got magnificent Icelandic landscapes captured in all their glory, so it's a pleasure to look at, and it makes me want to go on holiday. It's a splendid choice if you want a film to make you feel good. It does take its subject matter seriously, but it has fun with the story, and it's not too heavy. If you were to watch Border and um, you enjoyed it but wanted a bit of a tonic to a palate cleanser, then this is exactly <laughs> the kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's got a really unique character, this film, um, and I think it'll win most people over. 
Uh, it's in Icelandic with English subtitles, so um, you would have to do some reading. I hope that doesn't put anyone off. I'm aware you're not a fan of the quirk in films. Tiger, what is he? Quirk that feels uh, smug or calling attention to itself or something that, that doesn't feel like a, a natural consequence of the characters or, or the environment or, or the, the story. Even with something as weird as, as the band that are and also are not there. None of it takes you out of it. Um, is it available to watch easily online? Sounds quite obscure. Easily, yes, but not for free. Sadly, I couldn't find it for free anywhere, um, but it can be rented or purchased easily from Amazon Prime for under £5. I think it's well worth the money. There has been talk uh, ever since 2018 when this came out of an American remake directed by and starring Jodie Foster. Um, I think it was actually officially announced, but I've got no idea what's going on with that. So if, if you don't fancy subtitles, then maybe just give it a few years and Jodie Foster will make a, an American version, which presumably would suck in comparison. <laughs> in the paraphrasing of Bong Joon-ho during this year's awards season, jump over the one-inch wall of subtitles and a whole world of mm. film will open up to you. As a service, if any of our listeners have problems with subtitles and would like to watch the film, uh, Andy will perform all the parts for you and provide you with your own, <laughs> own personal dubbed version. In hilarious Icelandic accents as well. <laughs> so Andy, how many um <laughs> fuck I've got nothing. <laughs> yeah, that was the problem I was having. <laughs> how many obscure Danish treats out of ten would you Icelandic? How many obscure Icelandic <laughs> treats out of ten? I would give Woman at War Order off to you, which is eight out of ten. Excellent. That sounded <laughs> convincing actually. Oh I've got Google Translator. <laughs> So now we're going to talk about a director that perhaps we don't talk about often enough. For the past four or five weeks of lockdown, um, Saturday nights for Andy and I have meant um, Hitchcock night. So the master of suspense. What? No, actually Hitchcock. (laughs) So we've been enjoying... um, five of his most famous works, uh, mostly for the first time. So we wanted to come onto the podcast, talk about our experience with the rest of you guys who are um, probably more long-term Hitchcock. Hitchcock? Oh. <laughs> uh, Hitchcock. Um. <laughs> and there's the title for the podcast. <laughs> Um, so we wanted to talk about our experience with the rest of you guys who are probably more long-term Hitchcock fans. So uh, we'll be talking about how we found the films, how they hold up, uh, the cameos, the women, um, and of course, the groundbreaking effects. So the first one we watched is Rear Window. And that was uh, directed, um, well, by Hitchcock. By Hitchcock, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it stars uh, James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, um, and Raymond Blur. Blur? Blur. Raymond Burr. So the whole premise is that uh, James Stewart's character is recuperating from a broken leg, um, and it's a bit of a heat wave in um, in his town in Chelsea. So he's looking out the window to all of his neighbours who all have their windows open uh, to stay cool, and things happen as as a star. Synopsis of choice. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I'm going to hand it over to Andy now to see what you thought. I really liked it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, 
Now, the only familiarity I'd had with this film before uh, was in an episode of The Simpsons that spoofed it. And uh, how are we for spoilers? Are we avoiding them? I think we can spoiler a, 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 a six, 70-year-old film. Yeah, up to a point. All right, then. Well, in this Simpsons spoof, the ending is the other way around. And I watched the entirety of Rear Window, expecting it to end the same way as the episode of The Simpsons, and then was surprised when it didn't. With a, with a screaming Ned Flanders. <laughs> Yes, exactly right. If you know the name of the king or queen being murdered, please press one. <laughs> you have selected regicide. Yes, <laughs> I had kind of made up my mind from the beginning, um, expecting the ending, and then was surprised. And uh, I was I was very pleased about that. It was was really 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 enjoyable. I hope that's all the information you require. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I love films that are all set in one location. Um, so like Twelve Angry Men, um, Dread, Die Hard, because you can just really focus on the characters and something unfolding. And it was so unique the way that it was shot, where it pans from one window to the other. So you sort of you know, watching from uh, James Stewart's eyeline in a way, sort of looking from one window to the next, kind of trying to find something interesting to watch. And then you obviously zone in on this particular window uh, where a, a woman screams and events after that could or could not be um, the aftermath of her murder. Uh, so I just I just thought it was such an interesting um, way to shoot it. I think it was a purpose-built set. I can't quite remember. It was, yeah. yeah. Massive set built, yeah. yeah. But not always for the remakes they sometimes do it a different way didn't they uh, I, w- I was going to mention the remake uh, towards the end but let's stay positive for now before i get on to the remake <laughs> yeah well from a, on a positive standpoint um I, I put a tweet out yesterday mentioning that we were going to be recording a bit of a hitchcock special and asking our followers to tell us what their favorite film was and rear window was by far the most popular answer and i can see why i think um the leads Stuart and grace kelly were just amazing and it was just such a simple plot but such a story that was so well told it's towards the early start of hitchcock's yeah streak of about 10 years of just an amazing one of films mm-hmm. to have made four or five of the best films of all time within that 10 year period is just astonishing yeah hitchcock's themes start to become more explicit in this so it's the way that it deals with voyeurism explicitly which i think becomes more of a theme yeah. That idea of watching and not being entirely sure what you're seeing, yeah, you know, kind of feeds you into Vertigo, obviously, and and Psycho, and so on. You can see how they had an influence on things like uh, Body Double, say the Brian De Palma movie, mm-hmm. which again deals with this voyeuristic someone on the Hollywood Hills seeing what looks like a murder in another. Well, all of Brian De Palma's career is a Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> tribute. To some extent, it, yeah, blow up, mm-hmm. dress to kill, but again, that sort of understanding what you're seeing and whether it's true or not. Mm -hmm. The most recent one I can think of that really homages Rear Window is Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf, which was about 10, 15 years ago. Was that technically a remake? It's so close to it, that. Apparently there was a court case, Mm -hmm. but a judge ruled that it didn't steal the plot from Rear Window. Mm -hmm. It was the estate of the author of the original short story, it had to be murder. That brought an action rather than the film company. The official remake, and I, and I feel quite bad saying this, is one of the worst films I've ever seen. And the reason I feel quite bad is the circumstances in which it was made. Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve starred and directed it after his accident. Mm. And obviously, to, to st- not only to star in a film, but to also direct it, 
given the the problems that I had, is an amazing feat. But the film itself is absolute stinker. <laughs> but I think Rear Window it does hold up to multiple viewings as well. This doesn't, mm. isn't the first time I've watched it. I first saw it about five years ago, and still I was totally, totally hooked into it. So if you hadn't watched it in a while, maybe time to to check it out. Um, but let's let's move on to the second film that we watched, which was Psycho. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it came out in 1960. Um, stars Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, based on the 1959 novel of the same name by Robert Block. The film centers on an encounter between a secretary called Marion Crane, who ends up at a secluded motel after stealing money from her employer. And she uh, meets the motel's owner-manager, who is the infamous Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. So, Andy, what do you think to this one? I loved it. It might have been my favourite Hitchcock film. I think we'll probably come on later to how um, Hitchcock uh, treats and thinks about and portrays women in his films. But one thing that was, I think, vital to the success of this was um, Marion Crane being sympathetic and likeable. And uh, that, that made everything all the more troublesome um, when, when Norman Bates, um, spoiler, goes psycho and does the stabby <laughs> I think, thing. I think that was generally um, well known. <laughs> she probably shouldn't have been a, a sympathetic character because she stole money and absconded. But Hitchcock made me care about Marion a lot. And I can imagine not knowing what happened in that shower scene would have been one of the most shocking cinema experiences you could possibly have. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually a little bit strange for me because uh, that scene has entered the, the, the public consciousness probably more than the rest of the film. And I've, I've seen that played out in a million spoofs and top 100 movie moment countdown shows and so on. And uh, it's, it's fantastic, but it's, it's a shame that it overshadows the rest of the film to the extent that it does, because the rest of the film is masterful. It's being so familiar with it and then actually properly seeing it for the first time was, was weird. Uh, but I think it's testament to the rest of the film that um, it, it didn't take me out of it too much and mm-hmm. I just, just loved it. It was dark and, and unsettling and uh, captivating. I sat down to watch it the, uh, a few weeks ago and realised I'd accidentally downloaded the, um, the remake. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, I, I managed, to, managed to stop that very quickly. Am I right in thinking that the film Hitchcock with Anthony Hopkins playing... Alfred Hitchcock is about the making of Psycho? To some extent, yes. Is that right? It's based on a very good book by Stephen Rabilla, which is called Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho, which sort of documents the making in quite a lot of detail, but also goes into Hitchcock's life at the time. It's a full-length documentary called 7852, which is entirely about the shower scene, because it's, I think, is it 78 cuts in 52 seconds? Um, And it's an entire film just about how the shower scene was created and its legacy on films, because it's obviously such an influential scene. And you would think that sounds like quite a dry, small subject for a, for a full documentary, but it's, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. I may have to watch that. I think that scene's a, a brilliant demonstration of how to get oh. an audience kind of uh, into the shoes. She wasn't wearing shoes, but into the shoes of a character and make them feel it as if they're having the experience themselves. Um I thought actually the, the point of view camera uh, idea in Rear Window did that brilliantly mm-hmm. as well. And stuff like that, that I think gets you really into a film rather than just 
just distractedly watching it while doing something on your phone. It's very loosely based on the book. Mm-hmm. In the book, Norman Bates is like a beast, overweight, elderly, quite creepy character. And mm-hmm. then by changing that to um, Anthony Perkins, immediately puts a whole new slant mm-hmm. on the film. I'm not sure whether the murder happens at the same time or is intended as such a centrepiece in the book. But this generally is what Hitchcock did with books. And so there's very, very few Hitchcock films that, within that, that period that we're talking about that were not based on existing properties. So Vertigo was yeah. based on a, a French novel. Uh, the Birds based on a Daphne de Maurier short story. But if you go back to the original texts, there's very little resemblance in a lot of cases to the final film. Mm-hmm. So it's a thing of Hitchcock's auteur. So what he, what he was very good at, and also what Stanley Kubrick kind of did a bit later on is is take an existing property that he's interested in but use that just really as a starting off point for his own interests and obsessions okay so actually let's let's move on to our third pick um which is the birds uh um filmed a couple of years later in 1963 it is as you mentioned based on a novel which came out in 1952 and focuses on a series of sudden and unexplained violent bird attacks to the town of uh, Bodega Bay uh, in California over the course of a couple of days. Andy, what did you make of the birds? Again, I was familiar with with uh, certain key scenes and with, with the story, but I love the fact that they don't bother to explain mm-hmm. what's going on with the birds. It, it makes it a bit more creepy. And the fact is, it's not about uh, mythology. It's not about what's actually happening with the birds. It's about how it's affecting people. Where most of the horror um, and, and fear and, and nastiness is implied, which is, is brilliant. I like that. But there's one particular um, shot where, uh, where a body is found and you see it on screen for about half a second and mm-hmm. it's... Very, very effective. That That's still with me. I can still see that in my mind's eye. From 1963, that was astonishing that they got away with that. Yeah. It's the quick cuts closer and closer into it that I think has the effect rather than the actual gore itself. Yeah. Yep. Am I right in thinking The Birds is your favourite, John? Vertigo is my favourite, but The Birds is a, a close second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked the um, the fact that you didn't explain it either, um, because I thought that enabled you as a viewer to come up with a few explanations yourself. Because I was like, oh, she's lit a cigarette. Is it fire or smoke that draws them? You know, and I was finding myself getting involved in an interactive way. So I quite like a film that encourages a viewer to come up with the answers rather than being told exactly what the answers are. To an extent, obviously. Yeah, and you find yourself thinking, what would I do in this situation? Yeah. And um, I think we'd be fine. We've got tennis rackets. <laughs> a giant cone of bird <laughs> seed <laughs> that you just throw away from you and then run. Yeah, and cats. We've got two cats <laughs> mm-hmm. who have proved over the last couple of days that um, they can catch birds. <laughs> the thing is, there's only two cats and there's a lot of birds. So the yeah. cats would kill enough birds just to really piss the rest of them off. <laughs> and then they'd be coming for you. Yeah, it would be worse off, actually. Never mind. <laughs> I mean, is, is the birds the time to start talking about Hitchcock's treatment of women in films? I believe so. Mm. Knowing what I do about that scene, mm-hmm. I think we all know the one that we're talking about. The, the extent to which Hitchcock made it a reality is an uncomfortable watch. Mm-hmm. Tippi Hedren, he developed a particular... Um, obsession, I think is probably the right word. Mm-hmm. And to see that play out on screen, pretty uncomfortable. It's effective, but I don't 
think it's obviously worth it. So, yeah. Have, have you seen um, Marnie, which is the follow-up? Mm. No, I haven't. That's the second film that he made with Tippi Hedren. Yeah. Oh, we made another one. Yes, they made another one sort of a year or so after. This is the one with Sean Connery. Yeah. By the time he had made Marnie, his obsession with her was in full swing and he also felt that he'd been rejected by her. Yeah. Watching Marnie with that in mind is an incredibly uncomfortable watch. It's definitely uncomfortable. It's definitely a side to Hitchcock that needs to be part of the conversation. Um, I really enjoyed the film, but it's it's always there. <laughs> There's another film that came out around the same time as Hitch, which was the big blockbuster anti-Hopkins one. Mm. Uh, there was a, a film called The Girl, which came out on HBO around the same time with Toby Jones playing Hitchcock. Yeah. And yeah. it's a, a much less celebratory film. Yeah. And it talks about the making of the birds and Marnie um, from Tippi Hendren's point of view. And I, again, I really mm-hmm. recommend that. John, can you do the start of that again? Because the Hopkins thing was called Hitchcock and Hitch is the Will Smith rom-com. <laughs> no, sir, no, it was Hitch. Will Smith played Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, yes, of course. I was thinking of Hancock. <laughs> Uh, yes, so yeah. Hitchcock was the one that starred Anthony Hopkins and was the more celebratory, Hollywoody, summery film. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to Vertigo then, because that was the next film that we watched, and this is the one that I had the most problems with. And I know it's your favourite film, John, so hopefully we won't clash over this. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, it, it's my favourite Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's in my top three of all time with mm-hmm. Jaws and a rotating okay. A and other. <laughs> <laughs> So Vertigo um, actually came out a couple of years previous, so it's 1958. Uh, again, it's based on a novel. It stars uh, James Stewart as a former police detective called John Scotty Ferguson, and he's forced into early retirement because of an incident in the line of duty that caused him to develop uh, an extreme fear of heights and obviously Vertigo. He then um, is hired by uh, an acquaintance called Gavin Elster as a private investigator to follow Gavin's wife, Madeleine, who's played by Kim Novak, who is behaving a bit strangely. Uh, Andy, what, what did you think to Vertigo? I can't choose between this and Psycho as, as my favourite Hitchcock film that I've seen so far. Um, it's dark. It's dark, 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 dark. But I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I wouldn't consider James Stewart's character in this film to be a role model. Um, But I thought it was absolutely phenomenally executed. It was absolutely wonderful. Hazel, what did you think about it? This was my least favourite of all five. Um, And I think, I don't, don't, well... Viewers can't see John's expression here. (laughs) (laughs) Which is indignant to say. I know, I know. Um, See, I think think James Stewart is a phenomenal actor. I love everything he's ever done. And he played this incredibly well, almost too well, (laughs) to the point where I got really uncomfortable with his rough handling of Madeleine, Mm. um, his obsession in making her wear the same clothes, uh, you know, have the same hair. We knew when the characters changed. I know that it was done really well, but at the same time, it's not something that I wanted to watch. So it's a different sort of experience that I had with this one. Mm-hmm. But the purpose of it is to make you uncomfortable. I would agree with Hazel on that. I didn't know the plot of Vertigo going in. And I'd say it's probably, from a technical filmmaking point of view, could be his best, mm. but it's definitely not my favourite. 
And I think it is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable at the end. But I don't always gravitate towards films that make me feel uncomfortable in that way. At least unless they offer a conclusion that restores my comfort in some way. And I admire that Vertigo doesn't do that, but it wouldn't necessarily make it my favourite that he's done. Yeah. I think there's there's so much to admire, and I think this really does just come down to personal taste, really, because, um, you know, the, the not it's not only the acting choices um, and the plot, it was also, you know, it was the first film to use the, the dolly zoom, uh, which distorts perspective to create this sort of disorientated effect. Mm-hmm. The reverse zoom. I, I think that's that's just incredible and so innovative. But for me, I would prefer to watch something like Psycho or, you know, just something mm-hmm. oh, North by Northwest, um, which is probably, you know, much more lighter in tone than this, which did things to me. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a wonderfully made film. You could take any frame in that film and put it on your wall as a painting. It just looks yeah. so beautiful, particularly the restoration that was done a few years ago. But then the plot itself is actually a load of all nonsense. And if you, you think <laughs> about the plan and how ridiculous the plan is and the mm. logic behind it, it, it doesn't it wasn't stand really up to scrutiny you at know, all. It was making it up as he went along, I think. But if you, if you see James Stewart as Hitchcock yeah, and just the use of the male gaze in that mm-hmm. film, James Stewart does to Madeline Judy in that film mm-hmm. what Hitchcock did to Kim Novak in real life. Yeah, you know, he took Kim Novak, he dressed her in those clothes. He basically wanted to remake Grace Kelly. Yeah, after yeah. Grace Kelly, like, same with Tippi Hedren to some extent. Yeah, and when Kim Novak wasn't Grace Kelly, she got punished for not being mm-hmm. what Hitchcock wanted. I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on this film, mm-hmm. and I must have seen it a hundred times, and I've seen every other Hitchcock film, and I think it's just the most Hitchcocky Hitchcock. Um, both in terms of all these themes are all there on the surface and it's just it's an absolutely fascinating watch yeah it's not necessarily the film that i would watch on a friday night for fun mm-hmm. but just as an almost perfect piece of cinema that conflates all my interests it's all there yeah well actually let's let's move on to the last film that we watched north by northwest because the screenplay for that one was by ernest lehman who said that he did want to write the hitchcock picture to end all hitchcock pictures and that came out in 1959 which i believe is a year after vertigo so north by northwest um that one uh, stars carrie grant uh eva marie is it saint saint i think saint. eva marie yeah. saint it stars Cary Grant, Eva Marie Sant, and James Mason. It's a tale of mistaken identity. So an instant man is pursued across the US um, by agents of a mysterious organisation trying to prevent him from blocking their plan to uh, smuggle out something which contains government secrets. Andy, what did you think to North by Northwest? John said something which uh, summed up my feelings about it, um, which was uh, he likes it, doesn't love it, because um, there's no emotion in it. Mm-hmm. It's fun, but everything feels a little bit light. It's it's a Hitchcock film I didn't get into. It didn't captivate me. I wasn't really in in there with the characters, feeling things as, as they experienced them. Um, Cary Grant's character is introduced at the beginning as a little bit of a, a dick. He's a little <laughs> bit unlikable and such. And then the plot 
kicks into action and you, you follow him and I just felt it's funny it's exciting uh, it, it is enjoyable I did like it but uh, I, I never never uh, felt too much when watching it I liked it a lot more than that I would put it second to Psycho yeah, I love the performances I thought they were incredibly fun I love the chase across the US I love the Mount Rushmore scene I love the drunk driving scene I thought that was so well done um, and yeah for me it was the perfect film to watch on a Saturday night uh, and I would watch it again yeah I think North by Northwest is probably my favourite one I can acknowledge that some of the other films are technically better, more accomplished, stronger plots or stronger performances. But like Hazel says, the moments, some of the great set pieces in Vertigo are the ones that really stick in my mind when I think of Hitchcock, the crop yeah. duster yes. playing coming across the field in particular. If I think Alfred Hitchcock, I don't necessarily think of the birds or the, even the shower scene in Psycho. I think of that bit mm-hmm. from North by yeah. Northwest. Mm-hmm. It just feels a bit light and frothy and inconsequential to me that it's the sort of thing that he could do in his sleep. And it's a very, very good, technically proficient action thriller. I mean, it predates Bond, but it's almost like Hitchcock doing a Bond film. Yeah. Mm. But I just think by that point in his career, where he was making things what psychologically a lot more complex and interesting and meatier to dig into... I just don't think there's a lot there. I think it's just all style and very little substance. But again, it's, it's enjoyable. It's a, it's a great film, yeah. but it's a film that could have been made by anybody. But he made it better than yeah. most other mm-hmm. people could have. <laughs> True. So, so, John, your favourite film is Vertigo. Do we have any other nominations for their favourite Hitchcock? We've got North by Northwest for Dan. Peter, what's your favourite? I think I would probably go North by Northwest. Because we like a bit of style and no substance here. Yeah, that, that's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think I would go Psycho because I just remember the first time I watched it, I knew I was aware how famous it was. Uh, and yet it still gripped me and surprised me. Mm-hmm. Would you like some recommendations as to where to go next? Oh, yes. You've seen The Birds, which is um, Hitchcock's last great movie. Marnie is worth a watch, but it's more an interesting watch extra textually as to what was going on in the making of it than the film itself, which is a bit of a slapdash mess. So I would suggest going backwards. Mm-hmm. Some of his black and white films from the 40s and the 50s. So Suspicion with Cary Grant is an amazing film. Um, I should point out for listeners in the UK, Suspicion has recently been added to the Silver Screen Classics section on the BBC oh, iPlayer, excellent. so you can watch it for free. I watched it for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and it's great. Shadow of a Doubt, The Wrong mm. Man, uh, probably sort of the three classics. Uh, Rope is interesting, more as a technical experiment than a film. Mm-hmm. This was the film that he shot as if it was one take, so essentially it's a 1940s Dunkirk yeah. Do you mean um, um, 1917? 1917. <laughs> That's the one tracker shot you're talking about. Oh, so yes. <laughs> yeah, so essentially it's the 1940s, 1917. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, also in terms of him trying to put limitations on himself, Lifeboat, which is set entirely on a train. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, set, it's set entirely on a lifeboat. So was Rope one of the first mainstream films to try the this is one shot approach or had it been done before that i think it was the first but more research would need to be done you can go further back to the silent film so the lodger which is 1927 
silent film, but amazingly shot and some great early technical trickery in there. The woman can hear the lodger above, like walking back and forth. You pan up and he, he made a glass floor so you can see the lodger's feet walking along on top of them. And Blackmail, which was the first British sound film, mm-hmm. and does a lot of fun things with, with sound. To be the first British sound film and to experiment with sound in the way that it does is frankly showing off. <laughs> it sounds like your recommendations are basically all of them. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, the guy made 50-odd 50 50 films, didn't they? And there's some clunkers amongst them. Uh, very quickly, books. Donald Spurter wrote a book called The Films of Alfred Hitchcock, one of the first real critical appraisals of Hitchcock. He then went on to write a second book called Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, which I think some critics said basically you built up an icon and then destroyed him. Mm. So the first book is uh, about the films and then the second book is about the person. Right. And you need to read the two in tandem for the way that the person influences the films. The final book I would recommend is Truffaut Hitchcock, which is Francois Truffaut, the French New Wave film director, who essentially does a book-length interview with Hitchcock, talking about their respective careers, and it's Hitchcock's unvarnished views on his own films, what works and what didn't work, and what he was thinking of at the time. The French came along, Cahiers de Cinema, and places like that with the auteur theory, which essentially is that the director is the author of a film. And they kind of chose Hitchcock as their ultimate example of the auteur theory of somebody who works within the Hollywood studio system, Mm. but yet has a body of work that has a thematic unity. So um, Cahers the Cinema and the people involved with that basically Mm. led to Hitchcock being seen as a serious artist rather than just a director for hire. And he he loved that, obviously. It fed his ego immensely. So he, he sat down for a series mm-hmm. of interviews which have been published as a book. Yeah. And it's a, it's an excellent, very quick read. We would also love to know um, what you guys think as well. So um, if we haven't mentioned um, one of your favourite Hitchcock films, uh, let us know what uh, you think to it as well. So we're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if anybody would do that, I have a little treat for them. What's that? Anybody who gives us a, a, um, a nice review, um, I will come round and I will dress you as my ex-girlfriend and stare creepily at you from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks' time with our Buff or Bluff quiz. Until then, you've been listening to... A man who will treat Phil to a nice meal when the restaurants reopen. <laughs> Andy at war. A man who shouldn't be trusted in the shower. <laughs> a man with a broken leg who thinks his neighbours are up to something. <laughs> uh, and a woman who, from the sounds of it, has got a lot more Hitchcock to nosh on. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> Noshing on a Hitchcock is always the way to end the podcast. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> <laughs> title of the episode Notching on Hitchcock (laughs) yeah (laughs) see you next time bye bye I drove for half an hour with my wife and child to check to see if I could drive to London precious (laughs) 